go ahead and have a seat. I want to echo what's already been said, but I'll, I'll say it again. If uh, you're new around here, it's really good to see you. And it's, it's, it's a privilege of mine to gather with you people. Um, and not just, to, not just to preach, but just to be here is a privilege. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to the book of uh, 2 Corinthians. We'll be in chapter 8 this morning. We're going to work through the first 15 verses. And we'll jump into chapter 9 just for a moment. Um, but for the most of the time this morning, we'll be in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and the first 15 verses. As you turn there, I want to just share one of the concerns that was given to me, raised uh, by Pastor Tim. Um, as many of you know, I spent some time in Israel recently. It was, it was just one of the gifts that God has blessed me with. I, Sarah and I were afforded the, the opportunity to go, and it didn't cost us a dime. But Tim told me, uh, he came to me and he looked me square in the eye, and he said, I have a concern that when you go to Israel and when you come back, that you will be that pastor. You'll be the pastor that's always tying everything back to your trip in Israel and how you just had to be there. And, and maybe you've had a pastor like that. And so uh, I don't want to be that guy the rest of my life. I've got plenty of time to reference back to that. But if you would just give me one opportunity this morning, I, I want to tell you a little bit about uh, the experience that Sarah, Sarah and I had in Israel. Uh, and it, it, I, I promise it has something to do with the text. It won't be just me rambling on uh, for a, a period of time this morning. One of the, the greatest things that you get when you go to Israel and you spend time there is you can actually see the topography. It's quite amazing when we live in a two-dimensional world as we read the scriptures and we, we can't see. When they say up, we don't know what that means. When they say north, we don't really have an idea. Uh, when they talk about cliffs or, or different pieces of geography, we're not exactly sure how that works. And we try to piece it together best we can. But frankly, most of us, all we have to work with is the maps in the back of the book and we delve into our flannel graph days. And it's just, there's not much there, right? And so whenever you spend time in Israel, you can actually see uh, how the land is laid out. And one of the things that I noticed, Sarah and I, as we began our tour, we, we started, most of, the, most of the tour began, I, mean, I guess the big part of it, began in the northern part of Israel. And, and there we're at the sea of Galilee or the Sea of Tiberias and we actually stayed in Tiberias for a while and it was a beautiful uh, piece uh, or a, a lake or, or, or sea whatever you want to refer to it as I actually was a, I had the opportunity to do my uh, my F-260 reading plan I hope you're still in that but I had my opportunity to stick with that uh, in the mornings drinking a really nice cup of uh, espresso coffee uh, and uh or espresso coffee, rather, and uh, just spending some time in Scripture and watching the sun come up over the Golan Heights there. And, okay, I'm doing it, aren't I? But you know what would happen? Every morning when I'd be out there, I would just see fish just jumping out of the water. You'd see fishing boats, and I'm, I'm, I would imagine, like, that maybe would be the time of day that Jesus would have been out there and, and seeing with his disciples, you know, and talking with them. And as a matter of fact, recently there in Israel, in the Sea of Galilee, on a, when they had an extremely low day, um, in the water, and uh, it was a record low. Some fishermen were out there, and they were walking around, and they found the the tip and some and some nails of an ancient fishing boat. And so somehow the they were able to extricate the, the this boat out of the mud and keep it for the most part intact. And they began to, to study this thing, and and they put it in a museum, and they found out that this boat was actually on the Sea of Galilee, more than likely at the at the at the time of Christ. And so we don't know that. Maybe, uh, maybe Jesus stepped in it. We don't know. But we know this. The Sea of Galilee is teeming with fish. It's alive. It's alive. It's a, it's a wonderful piece of, of a body of water. And as the, as the trip went on, we traveled down. We traveled, traveled south through Israel. 
And uh, we got to uh, the, the, the very bottom of the Sea of Galilee, and there you have uh, the Jordan River, the mouth of the Jordan River, and it begins to flow south, obviously, down towards Jerusalem. And, 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 uh, and the, the Jordan River, again, is just, it's, it's a body of water. It's, it's, a, it's a small river, a stream that is teeming with life. It's a very green, lush area. There's plenty of fish, and we, we went down to several of, bapt, of the baptism sites they think, well, this may be where John was baptizing. This may be where Jesus was baptizing. As we spent some time there, you were able to look down into the water. And you could see all these fish and, and different creatures in the water and people in the water able to, to splash and swim a little bit and some people being baptized. It was a special time. Several sites we stopped at along the way. That was the, that was the picture. You'd be, even as you went south, you'd get into uh, be more desert-like, more arid, but as you would get closer back to the Jordan, that small stream, that little uh, river, as you got to it, you'd see life begin to just be everywhere. But if you follow the Jordan River, River all the way to the end, it ends in the Dead Sea. Maybe you can see where I'm going with this analogy, with this, this opener, if you will. The Dead Sea is dead. You see, the, the Sea of Galilee, it has many tributaries giving water to it. The Sea of Galilee also gives water out. There's a bit of a conduit into the Jordan River. And the Jordan River serves as a conduit all the way down through until it gets to the Dead Sea, and it dumps everything that it has there in the sea, but the Dead Sea does not give water out. It's the lowest dry area on the face of the earth. So as water goes into the, sea, the Dead Sea, the only way that it can get out is through evaporation. It's through, through evaporation. Maybe you can see where I'm going here this morning. The irony of this illustration is that water is the symbol for life. And the Dead Sea holds on to its water, and to its demise. You see, it's not a conduit. All the grace, all the water, all the life that it receives, it holds, and it's, it's what kills it. So my question for you this morning is to, to just consider in your own life, what does your life look like? Which body of water are you more like? Are you more like the Sea of Galilee? Maybe you, you have quite a, a bit uh, of, uh, of girth, and you really have, uh, in, in your resources, you've been blessed so much, and yet you're faithful to regularly pass on that grace, those gifts that you've received. Maybe you're more like the Jordan River. Maybe you're just a small part of it. Maybe you're the, the really narrow part. And so there's not a whole lot of, of depth to you there, and yet you regularly and faithfully give what you've been given. What you receive, you pass on. Or, sadly, are you like the Dead Sea this morning? As we look at this passage, I think what, what it's going to call us to see is this, that the gospel transforms our lives into conduits of grace. The, go- the gospel transforms our lives into conduits of grace, and we generously pour out for others what we have received from God the Father. The gospel transforms our lives into conduits of grace. We're not reservoirs of grace. We're conduits of grace this morning. And so with that said, with that framework, I'm going to jump into the text this morning. Yeah. There in uh, verse number one, it says, 
We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints, which were in Jerusalem, by the way. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that he had started, or that as he had started, so should or he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. And I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet he for your sake became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. And so now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has. Not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased by your burden, but that as matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. I just ask God to bless the reading of his word and invite you again to to go with me in prayer. God, this is your word that you've given to us. So we look to it this morning. As a pastor here among these people, I pray that you truly would feed your flock this morning. God, in and of myself, I have no power to do anything, let alone to lead us to good the truths. And yet by your spirit and through your word this morning, you can and will do that. You've done it before and you've promised us that you'll do it this morning. And so we come to you and we ask that you just do just that. We pray that marriages would be strengthened this morning as a result of this. God, we, Father, Father, we pray that, that, that individuals in their faith, God, that they would be encouraged Father, we pray that children would, would have a view and a picture this morning of what it is like to be generous. And not as they look at their parents' checking account, but as they look to the cross of Christ. And I pray that, that, that for all of us this morning, that we'd be informed not just by scriptures, but as, it, as we look through the scriptures to the cross, that we'd be strengthened thereby. And we ask that these things be done in the name of Jesus and in faith. Amen. So again, the main, uh, the main point here is the gospel transforms our lives into conduits of grace and, and thereby we generously pour out for others what we have received from God our Father. I want to remind you, as, as Paul addresses the Corinthians, he, he's calling them to share in the blessing that they have received. And they've received many blessings, and we can get into that here in just a minute, but he points to several things and he, that they've been blessed with. And, so I, and, and, and throughout this text, we'll take a look at them. And so as we walk through the passage, I want to point them out here. And the first is this. 
They're given a, a gracious, the, the, he, Paul points to a gracious gift that had been given. So this is the first point. The second point is the generous giver. He ultimately points us to the generous giver of all gifts. Even the, the Macedonian gift that we read about just a moment ago, that's point number two. And the third and final point is this, is, is the call to give. So Paul gives an example of a gracious gift given by the Macedonian churches. And then he, he points them to the generous giver who is Jesus Christ. And then finally, this Corinthian church, he calls them to give. So first, let's jump into the gracious gift. Uh, several times in this passage, as a matter of fact, I think it's ten times, um, the word grace is used. And it's used in different ways each time. Uh, but the, the idea is this, that it's, it's mostly referring to human generosity. So lots of times in Christian circles, when we talk about grace, we talk about it's unmerited favor, and that's exactly what it is. It's what it is here, but specifically, it's referring to human generosity in this passage. And Paul understands, though, that that's human generosity is only possible through the working of God, and so thereby it's human generosity given to others, but it's actually been made possible because God is working, his spirit is working amongst us people, and he's leading them to be a generous people. And that's what we believe this morning, and that's what we hope that as God changes our hearts this morning and continually throughout the years and ages to come as a church, that we will ultimately become more and more gracious, more and more generous in our giving. One pastor called the, the gift of money to others or the gift of resources to the other, it's a visible sign of an invisible grace. When we give generously to others, that it's a visible sign, it's tangible evidence of an invisible grace. And that will be one of the main themes that we'll see as we work through this passage this morning. Of this visible sign of an invisible grace. Something that's actually there but you can't see it until it's acted upon. That's really what this passage is all about. It offers us several biblical principles that we can apply. Not just to the realm of finance, but that is the context here. But as we talk this morning, know this, that the context is resources. The context is financial. But the principles that Paul recognizes here and offers to the church at Corinth, they're not financial principles. They're principles that he has received and taken from the scriptures, from the cross of Christ even. And he applies them to the realm of, script, or to the realm of finance. So the grace that we read of was a financial gift. It's a financial giving of one believer to another, from one human to another. And you need to know this. The context here is the church in Jerusalem was in dire straits. They were in the middle of a really hard time, both financially and socially. They were being persecuted. They were being oppressed in many ways. Many of them suffering and dying even. And as Paul gets ear of this, knows, hey, the churches that, that the Lord has used me to, to start and to plan and other believers that I'm in contact with, I know that they'd be willing to help. And so he reaches out to them. And one of those churches is the, is the area of Corinth. And so he's following up with them and he's calling them to give generously to the saints in Jerusalem. So that's the, the overarching context. And there he begins by talking about this church at Macedonia. He points to the, this church and he says, hey, I want to I show you an example of what it's like to give generously. And he tells the story about the church at Macedonia. And I want to point a few things out uh, regarding 
um, the church at Macedonia. The first is that they were afflicted. If you, if you look down at verse number two, it says that th- this group of people had really been going through the ringer. It says, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed into a wealth of generosity on their part. This is the church at Macedonia. It's not the church at Jerusalem. And yet they have experienced a similar plight, a similar situation the church at Macedonia did. As a matter of fact, they were in such a bad situation that Paul didn't even reach out to them and ask for them to give. They heard about this offering and gave of it of their own accord. Paul didn't even ask for it. This church here had been through a severe test of affliction. They were experiencing extreme poverty. They had little to spare their own. Severe, extreme. Maybe you can relate to that. You've been in a position in your life where you've really been suffering in in the area of finances or in resources. You just couldn't make things happen. and You you know exactly what it's like to be a Christian there in Jerusalem or in Macedonia. These, these, These Christians here, they were acquainted with suffering, with pain, with poverty. And by the way, Jesus said that we would be. Jesus said that all of us would face those things. And they truly were. And so they were afflicted there in verse number two. But it goes on to say in verse number two, the second point about them that I want you to really see is this, that they had joy. That they had joy. And this might be the most shocking thing that is said this morning for an unbeliever, for somebody that's, that doesn't understand the Bible or even the gospel. Maybe this is your first time even hearing anything like this, that you can have circumstances that are terrible, but you can also still have joy. That's what we're being told here right now. It wasn't that they had recently gone through a bad spell, but that they were in it. The effects were still all around them. And yet they had joy, and it was a joy that was otherworldly. To some, it gave the appearance of maybe even insanity or a loss of connection with reality. Do you really know what's happening right now? Macedonians, you've lost everything. How can you be happy right now? It's a paradox, but Christians have always been able to experience joy in the midst of great, great persecution and personal suffering. Throughout the ages, this is the truth. This paradox that we can experience joy in the middle of suffering. This is exactly what we see in this church. Philippians chapter 4 verse 7, it says, And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ. It passes all understanding. It doesn't even make sense. It's it's beyond our capability that, that we can experience peace, that we can experience joy the psalmist said, the joy of, my Lord, of the Lord is my strength. The Macedonians were saying that our joy, it cannot be taken. Our peace, it cannot be shaken. With Romans 8 gusto, they face the suffering and the persecution, and they're naive enough to believe that Jesus is enough, that they don't need safety, that they don't need finances to be better, that they can be joyful in the exact state that they find themselves in. So as we think about the Macedonians, we we think, man, these are some tough people. They're some faithful people. They have joy in the midst of suffering. I think of vinegar and baking soda. Maybe you've messed with those before. I remember when I found out about that, my mother, I think she thought to kill me. 
Because every time there was some, it wasn't somebody watching me, I was sneaking out baking soda and vinegar. I wanted to see what would happen when you mixed the two. And I loved to add a little bit of food coloring just to kind of give it that lava look. Or sometimes I'd mess around and go with different colors. But I'd make messes everywhere, stained carpets, ruined clothing. I'm giving kids terrible ideas right now. But when you mix vinegar and baking soda, there's this activation that takes place and really the results are mind-blowing for the first time when you see these stable normal just elements just sitting there and you mix them together and it's it's pretty interesting and it's the same way with joy and suffering it creates an em- empathy that's palpable that expands and that grows and overflows and that's exactly what we read that their joy and their suffering mixed together and it literally says it overflowed it overflowed What happens when you mix these two things, when you mix the joy of the Lord and suffering of the saints, it creates something called empathy. Among other things, but that's one thing that it does create. When we suffer and we have joy, it creates an empathy. And that's exactly what we see in the Macedonians. See, they knew what it was like to go without. They knew what it was like to suffer. They knew what it was like to to hold on and hang on together So with that empathy, with that desire to to help those who they knew exactly what they were experiencing, they'd felt the pain before, they're led then to give. A man or a woman who who has in the past waited tables, such as I, you usually clean up your table at a restaurant a little bit better than the others, right? Because you know what it's like. You know what it's like. When all that stuff gets piled in under the table and there's just kids that literally are just shoveling it under the table and all the parents are looking away and, and all the waitresses and waiters in the past are, are getting proud, right? We know what that's like. And, and so we clean our tables a little better and we leave a, maybe a little bit of a better tip. Why? Because we know what it's like to walk that road. It's not just with waiters and waitresses, but when you've walked a road, when you know what somebody's going through, you've been that construction worker on the side of the road that, that gets picked on, you've been the police officer, you've been whatever it is, you've been that teacher that, that, gets, that, that gets a bad rap all the time, whatever it is, you've walked those roads and then you can have empathy for those people. When you have the joy of the Lord mixed in with that as well, it leads you to a special place where you become a conduit of grace. I want you to notice something about this, this issue of suffering and joy. Look back at verse number one. Because we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Look, it says, the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. This grace has come from God, and it's being passed through the church at Macedonia. And so in a real sense, the suffering has come from God. It's a scary thing for us to hear this morning. That God would allow a test of suffering in the life of a believer. And on the other side, that God would also sovereignly send joy. So sovereign God, he did both of these things. He allowed both of these taking place, sovereignly knowing full well that it would create a welling up of grace in their own lives that would expand out to the churches there in Jerusalem. And so the Macedonians, they can't take any credit for this joyful, willing attitude that they have to reach out and help the churches there. It all comes from God's grace that has been given to them. And God's grace in their lives causes them to act in this way. And so it should leave the Corinthian church to ask. It should lead us to ask this morning, where is the evidence of God's grace 
that has been given to us, and what have we done with it? So whether it's the good things in your life or it's the bad things or it's the combination of both of those things together and God working in them and, ex- and you experiencing grace, do you see that and what has it led you then to do? Has it led you, has it, has it caused you to be gracious? Because that's the third point there underneath this, this initial generous gift is that the Macedonians, they gave. Number three, they gave. They saw giving to saints as a privilege. They saw giving to the saints as a privilege. And this is no Tom uh, Sawyer trickery. Paul hadn't like, confused them into thinking that they were going to get something uh, really good from this, but they really weren't going to get it. They weren't tricking people into painting fences and all that nonsense. No, they truly believed that it was a privilege to give of the little bit that they had to the churches there, to the, to the Christians there in Jerusalem. I wonder this morning, do you feel that way? Do you honestly look at giving and think that this is a privilege in your life, that you are able then to take what has been given to you and to pass it to somebody else, and to take what God has given to you and to pass it to them over here? The text will end this morning. We'll take a look back at at the first chapter of 2 Corinthians, and he says that we have been comforted by God for what purpose? As saints of God, why have we been comforted? It's so beautiful. So that we can comfort others. That's exactly what it says. And why have you been blessed financially? So that you can financially bless others. Why have you been gifted in your, in your talents and in the resources that you have as an individual? So that you can bless others. So that you can act as a conduit. And not spend those gifts and those blessings and those, uh, that, that bit of grace that has been given to you. Not on yourself. Not hoarding up as if it's weak. If there's not enough. But seeing it as a privilege to be used by God to pass that along. Verse number four, Paul says that they were begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And Paul's saying, are you kidding me? You guys don't have the money to be doing this. You don't have the time or the resources to be doing this. And, 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 but they beg, please. The, the, the word earnestly, agonize, is, is, is the idea there. Please, they're begging Let us take a part in this. And not for pride, not so they can brag and boast, but because they saw that this was a privilege. So they gave what they could. And as a matter of fact, Paul says that they gave more than they should have. Maybe even to the point of, of being unwise. And they gave to the point of sacrifice. It says there in verse five that Paul didn't even expect them to give. He doesn't even ask them. And they find out and they ask, can we give? This is maybe an uncomfortable sermon for you to hear if you're new around here. This is your first day. Or, uh, I'm not trying to, Paul's not trying to say, hey, you need to give this amount or to give that. Or He's not trying to make anybody feel guilty, but he's, recogn- he's helping us to see that it is truly a privilege to be a part of what God is doing in the church. And not locally, but globally. Not just locally, I should say. But they didn't just give because they, thought, they saw it was a privilege. But Paul saw that their giving of the saints was a proof. And so it was a privilege, but it was also a proof, their gift. Verse number eight says, I I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Paul, again, talking to the the church at Corinth, and he's saying, hey, look at the, the Macedonians. 
they saw it was a privilege. And what does that demonstrate, church at Corinth? What does that demonstrate about them? That their love for the saints at Jerusalem was not empty talk. It wasn't vanity. It wasn't a lie. That it was true. That it was genuine. This is a comprehensive test. Look at verse 7. There's a comprehensive test. Paul says, I've looked over your diagnostic report of your car, and he says, everything looks good. Your, your tires have plenty of tread on them. The oil looks fresh. The alignment is perfect. The brakes have plenty of, of pad life on them. He said, the only thing left to check is the coolant level, and I believe that it will be good. That's what he's kind of talking about in verse number 7. He's like, hey, look, you've got, you've got all the right things going for you. He says, in, in areas of faith, you believe the right things. Church at Corinth, you guys are top-notch. You guys are you're, you're really lining out. In the areas of faith, you, you, you're doing things right. In areas of speech, you say the right things. And in areas of knowledge, you know the right things. In earnestness, you feel the right things. Relationally, you relate the right way and you get it reciprocated back to you as you build relationships and community, even not just with folks in your own city, but even with Paul here. And he says, but this last piece that's, that, you're being, that I'm, I'm investigating or I'm inspecting is your giving. And he says, I, I expect that you will give and that you'll be generous because all of these other things are checking off. He says, I think that you're going to get a clean bill of sale or a clean bill of health, I should say. He says, but there's this one last thing. Would you, would you make sure that that's taken care of? Paul saw the, the enthusiastic generosity of that church in Macedonia it was a convenient standard for him assessing the genuineness of their, of their profession. And so he turns that to the Corinthians. And he's like, you, you should use this in your own life. And I, I want to push that off to you this morning. It's one of the easiest ways to take your spiritual temperature. I'm going to step into a, an area that I might not be welcome in. But one of the easiest ways for you to check your spiritual temperature is to check, check your, 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 your checking account. What are you spending your money on? Where do you invest your resources at? This is a, this is a heavy thing for me to ask. As Sarah and I spent time this week looking at our own finances. Asking the question out of conviction, where are we giving enough? Are we being sacrificial? God, are we hoarding thing, blessings that you've given to us and saving them for ourselves that may, they can be ex- expended on our own lusts and passions? Or, God, are we seeking truly to be generous as you've been generous to us? Frankly, I can tell you right now that as we look at our budget, I can see personally, as a family, that we have so much room to grow. And I may have all these other things checked off. But if I don't complete this test, if I don't complete this diagnostic by truly demonstrating generosity in my giving, then something's wrong. And and, and if you sense that this morning and you say, well, maybe that's me too. We're going to get to this, but the call for you then this morning is not to give more so that you can have that block checked. It's a diagnostic. If you notice that coolant is not in your radiator and it's missing, then you don't just put more in there. Now, you might do that so you can get home, but if that's your problem, you don't ignore it. You don't just add more coolant. There is a bigger problem. And we want to investigate that this morning. And so as a way of diagnostic, not an attack, and a way to, to, to see where we need to grow, we can look at our checking account. We can look at our, our expenditures. And I love this transition from verses 8 to 9. It's the word for, and it tells us that Paul sees 
something there, a greater example than the Macedonians. And he says, hey, look, the the Macedonians are great, but I want you to see something that undergirds them. That was the standard, that was the foundation for why they gave. And in verse number 9, look at what it says. It says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So he doesn't just stop, he doesn't just end with the Macedonians, he goes on to Jesus Christ. And this is the, the, the big point number two, the generous giver. The generous giver is Jesus Christ. He is the example that Paul ultimately points to when he calls us to give. As you think of Jesus this morning and, and the work that he did, let me just read a few Bible verses for you this morning if you're taking notes. This first one is, is uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So same, same book, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. I love this verse. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake, in our need, God made his son Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that we could become the righteousness of God. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He gave his very life for us. In just a moment, we'll celebrate that as Christians. The body of Jesus was broken, that his, his very blood was shed. And why? Why? Because God the Father loved us and he sent his son who was willing to give his life for us so that we in him could become the righteousness of God. I love John 3.16. If, you, if you'll bear with me, what a beautiful verse. And so many times we think, well, this is, this is elementary, and it is. And so it's where we need to stay. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God, verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. And so as we think of the the real generous giver, the real big spender, the the big tipper, the big Christmas gift, who, who is it? Who does that award go to? That that seat of honor, it goes to Jesus Christ. This is the theological foundation for giving. When you ask, why would you, Pastor, why would you speak of giving this morning? And I'm not getting specific. We're not talking about tithing. We have a very generous church. Financially, we're a healthy church, and God has blessed us and even given us a desire to to be critical about what he has given us and, and to consider how we can be even more generous as a church. And so this is not a corrective measure, but as we walk through the scriptures, we see that we've got to look at the, the cross of Christ and realize that he, the blessings that we see and that we receive from that cross, from the very work of Christ, are far greater than the blessings that we then pass on. And so Jesus is the most generous giver. I don't mean that he's tipped high when he was here on earth, or that he gave good Christmas gifts, although maybe he did, I don't know. The point is this, that his giving of himself for the sins of those who would be saved, in that he has set an example as he distributes as conduits of grace, he leads us to do the same. And not just in word or in knowledge, but in action. 
but in real deed. There's so many principles as we think of giving, as we think of resources that we could draw from the cross of Christ. But just to name two that we find in this passage and in the, in the following passage, two principles from the cross of Christ. Number one, Jesus gave of his wealth to those in poverty. Jesus gave of his wealth to those in poverty. I already read it. Uh, you look at verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 13 to 15. Listen, he, God the Son, equal with God the Father, he laid aside his riches and he took on poverty. The cross calls us to give of our wealth to those who are in need, to those who are in poverty. And you say, well, I, I, maybe if this is a spiritual poverty. Of course it is. But it doesn't stop there. It, it doesn't end there. It doesn't end with just one blessing that we've received from God. No. God has called us to do the same. So he, Jesus gave of his wealth to those in poverty. And we as a church of Jesus Christ here this morning, bearing his name, carrying his books, singing his songs, we have been blessed with so much. Ephesians 1 says every spiritual blessing we've been given. And so what should we do? Well, we should give of what we are most wealthy in. And that is the good news of Jesus Christ. We have been given that. And so we're to give it to others. As a conduit, we pass that along. And one of the dangers as a church for us this morning is that we become like the Dead Sea. We receive so much good news and we keep it to ourselves. And we are in a city that is literally, like so many others, but that's not where we live. We live here in a city that is dying and going to hell. So many, so many that need the good news of Jesus Christ. And so the thing that we are most rich in, would we not give to those who are most poor? Jesus gave of his wealth to those who are in poverty. And the second principle that we get from the, the cross of Christ, and again, there are so many here, this one I actually jumped into chapter 9 and verses 6 and 7 is that Jesus sowed much and he reaped more. He sowed a lot, but he got way more than what he sowed. As, grain, uh, as a grain of corn is, is sown in the spring, when harvest comes, that one kernel has multiplied by the thousands. Jesus laid down his life on the cross, and when he himself took it back up there in the husk of that corn was much, much more. So much more that when he laid his life down, when he picked it back up, he reaped bountifully of the sacrifice that he had given. And remember, every single seed, when it goes into the earth, what does it do? It dies. When it's sown. And yet it, when it's reaped, it's bountiful, isn't it? There's so much more and this is, this is the line that we find ourselves in. The cross of Christ invites us to reap bountifully as well. We are uh, from that initial seed that God the Father introduced there out of the grave, a new creation in his son that would bring to bear fruit throughout ages to come. We are a part of that. And as heirs of that seed and in that godly line, we are to bear much fruit and bountifully as we are in Christ. So when we sow, we will reap more than what we've sown. Again, this is a principle that has been given to us in every way and on every level that when we give, when we sow, of whatever resources and blessings and grace that God has given to us, we will reap bountifully. And so we have the example of the Macedonians. We have the DNA of, the, of this new seed of the heritage of Christ 
And now we see, finally, the last point, the the direct call to give. The direct call to give. Look at verse 8. Paul, he now turns from the Macedonians and talking about, about them, and he's talking directly to the Corinthians, and he says, I say this, not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. He calls them to give. This is the odd part, right? But not for Paul. Paul doesn't know awkwardness. And so he leans in and he says, I'm not commanding you, but I am telling you as your friend that you need to prove the earnestness of your love, that it's genuine. This is how you'll do it. He doesn't command them, but he calls them to demonstrate their love for the saints by meeting them in their need. And this is the fruit that believers will bear. We will bear this fruit. Jesus said that by by this will all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. What does love look like? Maybe this is overused, but love is a verb, right? It's action. It's not something we say. It's something that we do. We demonstrate. So there's so much empty talk nowadays. Paul is saying, hey, put your money where your mouth is. He's encouraging them along in these, maybe they're even just babes, some of them, in Christ. And he's saying, hey, this is what Christians do. This is the next step. Yes, you've got these things right. You've got these things right. But the next thing that you need to be working on is to to really check your heart. Are you generous? Have Have you considered what's keeping you back from being generous? And at this point in time, I really want to just kind of, by application this morning, give some opportunities for you guys to consider what generosity would look like in your life. So just a few weeks, as you heard about, we'll be, oper- we'll be participating in Operation Thanks. or Around here we call it Op Thanks. So you can call it that. You're welcome. Uh, but we'll gather frozen poultry and we'll fix a great deal of hot chocolate and we'll engage the community, community on a day, whether it's rainy or shiny or whatever. And we do this for what purpose? Well, the, it's simple. To provide turkeys to those who might not otherwise be able to have one. There's really three goals that undergird why we do Operation Thanks, and here they are, to meet the material needs of Hagerstown families. This might be hard for you to fathom, but there are people today that cannot buy a a turkey. Imagine that. You say, well, it's not the end of the world. Of course, no, it's not the end of the world. But wouldn't it be wonderful if we could meet that need? A physical need that somebody has. I would love to, to be a part of a church that generous, and we have. Last year we did. It was so wonderful meeting so many different faces and being able to, to hand that, that frozen turkey, some of them heavier than others, to, to a family in need. The second point is to give joyfully and earnestly out of the abundance that we have received in Christ. And so many of us have been blessed financially and resources. And instead of just buying one turkey this Thanksgiving, we could buy two, maybe three or four. This is an opportunity that we want to, to demonstrate the, the joy and love that God has given to us for his people and for, for those around us. And lastly, the reason why we will participate in Op Thanks, and as one of your pastors, as I'll call you to participate together in this here in Hagerstown, is because we want to reflect the glory of God. We want him to be glorified, not just in our lives, but in the lives of those who eat frozen turkeys. Not eat them frozen, but, right? That's what we want. So Operation Thanks. I want you to just consider what would it look like in your family for you guys to begin to set aside just a little bit of money in your budget. Begin to just carve out a little bit to give to Op Thanks. And Saturdays are precious, but it's coming up soon. Would you consider being a part of that? Actually being boots on the ground that day. And not just giving somebody a frozen turkey and a hot cup of hot chocolate, but the good news of the gospel, a resource that we've been blessed in far more than turkey or hot chocolate. So these are real needs, and we're really going to meet them. On Op Thanks. 
Also, we have a giant blow-up turkey. That's really cool. And we'll have that as well. Not long after Op Thanks, here's another opportunity for you to consider. Not long after Op Thanks, we'll begin to collect an, for an offering, an international missions offering, and we'll give that um, to the International Mission Board. Uh, we'll call the offering the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. More information will be coming soon about the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. But hey, let me just say this about it quickly. Thousands of missionaries around the world depend on this offering. Thousands of missionaries. In fact, one of our very own missionaries whom we love dearly, the Ashleys, they depend on the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. And so uh, 100% of what we give as a church, 100% goes directly to the missionaries, 3,714 by, uh, by Chris Gomes's account. So I don't know if he can count that high on his fingers and toes, but that's what he told me. 3,714 missionaries around the world depend on Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Real families, brothers and sisters in Christ, away from their families, away from their homes, in foreign lands. And they need our support as they bravely, confidently, boldly share the gospel of Christ where we sometimes can't go, aren't able to go. It's that, that, that money that we will take up and send out. This will be the first time as a church that we'll participate in that, and I'm so excited. It will help with housing, with training, with education, with health care, and all these things that guys and gals just like me and you worry about on a regular basis. We'll be able to meet those needs where they're at. And so, again, I just want you to consider, what would it look like for your family to be generous in that area? I'm not asking for you to give to Hagerstown Church. I think you should. I think you should give to the local church. I think you should, absolutely. But what would it look like for you to be generous to those who are serving for the cause of Christ in a place that is unreached, unengaged, and unwelcoming? What would it look like Since uh, 1845, the IMB has partnered with Southern Baptist churches to send missionaries to live and work around those in the world with little to no access to the gospel. We get to be a part of that. That's one way for you to consider what it would look like for you and your family to be generous. You say, I don't have a family, it's just me. Maybe I'm a college student. Remember, this passage speaks to that. You say, "I I can't give because I don't have much to give. That's not what Paul says. Paul says, don't let that be a reason for you not to give. Give. Give sacrificially. Give what you can. What would it look like for you to be a part of Op Thanks? What would it look like for you to be a part of Lottie Moon to, to right now even, be going, to even begin to budget? Maybe it's too late, but you're like, next year. We've got 13 months before the next year. And so next year when Lottie Moon runs around, we're going to have a, a line item set aside and we're going to have saved up some money. Maybe it's not Lottie Moon. Maybe it's some other area. It doesn't matter, but here's what I know. God has called you, Christian, to be generous. You've not been called. You've not been blessed to bless yourself. You've not been blessed to expend those blessings on your own lusts. So as a pastor, Tim and I were talking about this, about this very thing this week. We, we pray that our church would truly be overwhelmed by how much Christ has given to us. And that out of that, it would lead us to be even more generous and deliberate and proportionate than we are today. As you think of what the Lord is calling you to do, I want to just turn your eyes to this table here this morning. We're about to partake in the Lord's Supper. I want to just tell you at the beginning, if you're not a believer this morning, if you're not a Christian, we love you. We're glad that you're here. But this table is not for you. This table is, there's no, there's no grace here for you if you're not a believer. 
But as Christians, what this does for us is it, it, it reminds us of the, of the grace that God has given to each and every one of us as Christians. It reminds us of the broken body of Jesus that was broken for our sin, that the blood uh, was shed for our salvation. And so if you're not a believer here this morning, there's nothing here for the table inside. I would ask that you not participate. But if you are a believer this morning, I want to invite you to come to this table and to partake in what the Lord has given to us. And to be reminded one of the things that I asked the Lord to do for us as a church at the beginning was to bring us to a place where we could see the sacrifice and the generosity of Christ in a clearer light this morning. And so I pray that as you come to the table this morning, that you truly would see that, that you'd experience that. The grace of Christ made available to you at the cost of his own life. And that as we leave this table, in a manner of speaking, we would take that gospel that we see embodied here and we would spread it throughout the neighbors and the nations. We ask a blessing. God, with reverence, we look to the cross this morning, recognizing that you have given so much more than we can even realize. But in that statement, we also know that you can bring us to the place that we can see it, and so we ask for that this morning. We pray that whether we be far from you, whether we just be in a spiritually dry season, or whether we be on the mountaintop, whatever it is, and in between, we pray that this morning that anew and afresh that we would see and savor Jesus and the work that he has done. And the fact that he has taken the wrath that you have toward those who have sinned and who hate you. And he's taken that and he's replaced it with love and with grace and with righteousness. And so as we come to this table this morning, we, we don't come with clean hands and a pure heart on our own accord, but because of the work that Christ has done. So come in and we enjoy fellowship and communion together and we pray that this would ultimately as we savor this meal that we would be led exponentially to be generous in every area and facet of our lives with every resource and we pray these things in your name Jesus